So I want to talk to you just beginning about a man named William Ogden. I bet you don't know that name. It's not a household name. It might have been about 100 years ago. In 1841 to 1897, uh, that's when William Ogden lived. And he was a very famous hymn writer. In fact, he wrote over 200 hymns. And I bet you sing some of those hymns and you don't even realize that William Ogden was the one who wrote them. He lived during the Civil War, and he was 20 at the outbreak of the Civil War, and he enlisted in the 30th in, um, Indiana Volunteer Infantry fighting on the northern side. He was originally from Ohio. Well, when they realized his musical talents, he was asked to form a men's choir. And this choir was meant to bring inspiration to these men who were fighting against slavery. So most of his hymns have as their backdrop the violence, the upheaval, and the uncertainty of the Civil War, where literally thousands of Americans were dying. One of my dad's favorite hymns was written by William Ogden, and it's, He is able to deliver thee. Perhaps you remember if you've attended Calvary or been here, um, some of the lyrics. It went like this, and I'm going to resist singing it to you, which is really a blessing in disguise. But Tis the grandest theme through the ages rung. Tis the grandest theme for a mortal tongue. Tis the grandest theme that the world e'er sung. Our God is able to deliver thee. He is able to deliver thee. He is able to deliver thee. Though by sin oppressed, go to him for rest. Our God is able to deliver thee. Tis the grandest theme in the earth or main. Tis the grandest theme for a mortal strain. Tis the grandest theme, tell the world again. Our God is able to deliver thee. Tis the grandest theme, let the tidings roll. To the guilty heart, to the sinful soul. Look to God in faith, he will make thee whole. Our God is able to deliver thee. These same lyrics have given me so much hope through every crisis of my life. I have found myself singing these very lyrics on the streets of London, in peril, in hard times, in um, traffic, in all sorts of circumstances. I have found myself singing these songs. I have found myself singing it about protocols, about struggles, about financial constraints, about uh, things that look like a certain loss. I have found myself singing it over my children, over my husband, over my loved ones, over the church, over my parents. I have found myself singing it over and over and over again because my God, our God, is able to deliver. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 spoke about an overwhelming circumstance in which he was sure that he was going to lose his life. 
Remember, this is Paul who had lived through riots and hunger and beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks. Yet in 2 Corinthians 1, 9 through 10, he says this, Yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he still will deliver us. God is working in all the circumstances of our life, even the darkest seasons, to accomplish our deliverance. And friends, let me say this. Jesus has already delivered us from our greatest enemies. He has delivered us from sin. He has delivered us from death. He has delivered us from condemnation. But he is even now living and working to deliver us from the circumstances of this life, from the tremendous to the trivial. From our vantage point, we can only at times see the things that are aspiring, conspiring against us to take us down. Isn't that true? That's all we see is like the worst. The Bible, though, gives us a heavenly perspective. Through the word, we see that God is in the details, even in the hard things, even in the darkest things, taking even the worst that he might do his best for those who serve him. I remember reading a quote years ago by F.B. Meyer, where he says, men go to work in the morning at the sunshine and work until the dark. But God works in the darkness to bring about the light. God works in the darkest of circumstances to bring about the light, to cause the sun to rise. I want to remind you that the Bible was not written in an atmosphere of prosperity or of plenty or of perfect, pervasive peace, but in the context of a Evil, oppression, betrayal, violence, famine. It is the story of God's continued faithfulness, God's grace, God's provision, God's discipline and training, God's compassions, even in the atmosphere of a broken world. This is what the Bible tells us this is what the Bible reveals to us by men who were writing in upheaval, in oppression, in betrayal, in violence, in famine, in imprisonment, in captivity. They were declaring to us the goodness, the greatness of the Lord. His good plans and promises are being woven into all the circumstances of life, not in spite of what is happening, but through what is happening in everything. In our lesson this week from Genesis chapters 41 and 42, we get the divine vantage point. To those in the midst of these circumstances, to Jacob, to the sons of Jacob, there is little hope. However, 
from our vantage point, we know that Joseph is alive and that the power that is working in Egypt is for the family of Jacob, for the sons of Jacob. Already we see that God has been victorious even in the betrayal of Joseph and has used that for the highest good. We already see that all the hard places in Joseph's life have prepared him and trained him to be the administrator of the world. We see that the famine, God has already prepared for the famine and that those who seek out Joseph will not starve, but will have plenty even during the famine. God is working both the deliverance of God's family from the famine and extinction, but he is also working to deliver them from the sin that is slowly but surely eating them alive and keeping them from all of the blessings God wants to bestow on the family of Jacob. God doesn't want any obstacles in our life that will keep us from his blessings. And he will use hard places. He will use famines to bring to light all the lies that we've been living in, all the sin that we've been suppressing, the evil of our past, to bring to light our fears, our doubts, our loss of faith. This is what he's going to bring out in these hard places that he might eradicate, that he might forgive, that he might cleanse, that he might remove these obstacles that have barred the blessings that he wants to pour into our lives. In Genesis chapter 42, we realize that Jacob's family is in dire straits. There's a famine in the land, and there is not enough grain to sustain his livestock. Jacob needs grain in order to keep his family alive, in order to keep his livestock alive. Without this vital grain, he will lose his camels, his donkeys, his cattle, his sheep, his goats, and therefore his income. See, this is how Jacob made his wealth. This is how he prospered through livestock. It's not through farming. He was a nomad, but he has prospered through raising this livestock. Now there's a famine. Uh, There's no grass. There's no feed for the animals. He needs grain. Jacob hears that there is grain in Egypt, so he commissions 10 of his sons to go to Egypt. He will not let Benjamin go with them. After losing Joseph, he probably kept Benjamin so close to him, always in his sights. His name means son of my right hand, and that seems to be exactly where Jacob always wanted him right at his right hand, right where he could always see him. When I was um, a little girl, my mother always kept me in her sights. 
my mother was adopted. So family was very, very important to her. And she was especially protective of me. She wanted me named Sherry, but my father wanted me named Cheryl, which is the feminine form of Charles. And I'm really thankful to be named by my father after himself. That's just something really, really special in that. But in the meantime, my mother had had a really dear friend who had a daughter named Cheryl. And when I was only about a month old, uh, this other Cheryl, the older Cheryl, she was thrown from a horse, her own horse, and she was um, killed. She died from being thrown from that horse. Consequently, my mother was terrified to ever have me go horseback riding. My mother was raised around horses. She was a very accomplished uh, horseback rider. Nobody knows those things about my mother, but she was very accomplished at riding horses. But she didn't want me to ever ride a horse because she had this fear that I might die. So I was never allowed all my life until I was 13 years old to go horseback riding. And it was at an idle wild camp and all the kids were going horseback riding. So my mother decided she would accompany us. She was so afraid of, of me dying. And she came and it was like the worst ride of my life. All the horses were tethered together and I think they were all ancient. I think that we never even traveled above three miles an hour and they were one right behind each other and it was just a circular trail. I think the Lord did that for my mother. <laughs> she just needed that relief. But she sat there and she watched and she actually walked alongside my horse. Here's all these kids and I'm the only one with a mother walking beside my horse. I think that's how Benjamin was in the sight of Jacob. Jacob was so concerned. He had lost Joseph and he was so afraid that he might also lose Benjamin. Now, from our vantage point, we know that Joseph is the prime minister. From our divine perspective, we already recognize God's purposes and the fulfillment of God's promises that will be accomplished through this famine. However, for the brothers, there is no such divine vantage point. Joseph's brothers go to Egypt and come into the presence of the prime minister of Egypt. This is incredibly intimidating. They need grain for survival. So they bow before the prime minister of Egypt. They do not recognize their brother Joseph. Remember, it's been 20 years years since they have last seen him. He was 17 when they sold him into slavery. Now he is over 30. Last time they saw him, he was dressed as a Hebrew. Now he's dressed as an Egyptian. Last time they saw him, he spoke Hebrew. Now he speaks to them in an Egyptian language through an interpreter, not even directly. Also, those who were officials in Egypt all wore eyeliner. So Joseph's face looks different. His hairstyle is different. His garments are different. Now, 
Joseph speaks roughly to his brothers through this interpreter. But even as he is roughly questioning them, he is flashing back on the dreams that God gave him over 20 years earlier. In his mind, he is seeing the sheaves of his brother bowing down to his sheep, Genesis 37, 7. He's seen his brother as the, as the stars that are bowing down to him in his second dream, Genesis 37, 9. From Joseph's vantage point, he is seeing the promises of God fulfilled. He is seeing that God has kept his word to him, that those dreams were indeed divine. And you see, there are two dreams. The first dream is now being accomplished. The sheaves are bowing down to Joseph. But there's another dream. In the next dream, it will be Jacob and the wife of Jacob and all 11 stars, Benjamin including, bowing down to Joseph. So do you understand what Joseph's vantage point is? He realizes that God is fulfilling all his word to him. Here is this word that God spoke so many years ago, but there's a greater work, a greater word yet to come. Joseph tests his brothers. He accuses them of being spies, of coming to Egypt uh, to seek out Egypt's vulnerabilities. He asks them pointed questions. How is your father? Is he still alive? How is his health? about their family. Do you have any others? Is there a younger brother? He demands that they bring their younger brother to his court. He says, you will not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. Verse 15 of chapter 42. He commands that they send one of them back to bring the youngest brother to him. Verse 16. And then he places them all in prison for three days. Verse 17. Then he brings them out of the prison and he makes an arrangement with them. Do this and live for I fear God. Verse 18, this word for God, Elohim, this is a Hebrew word and it speaks of God as the supreme one. It is the name of God, the creator. It is the name that God first revealed himself to Abraham as. Then Joseph gives specific orders to his brothers. He tells them that they are to leave one of the brothers behind in Egypt, and that brother will be placed in prison. They are to carry back grain for the rest of their family to Canaan. They are to bring their youngest brother back when they return in order to verify the word they have spoken the brothers begin to talk among themselves. And in their conversation that Joseph overhears, we realize that what they did to Joseph is still haunting them. This is what they say to each other, verse 21. We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. For 20 years, 
these men have lived with the guilt of what they did to Joseph. For 20 years, they can still see the anguish on Joseph's face. 20 years later, they can still hear Joseph's cries, his pleadings with them. And for 20 years, they have attributed all their distress on what they did to Joseph, on the consequence of their actions. They recognize that they deserve the condemnation that they are experience, experiencing. Reuben adds, did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. Therefore now his blood is required of us. This is how they feel. It's coming down. It's finally catching up with us. Here is what an earthbound perspective does. We deserve this distress. We are paying for and we will pay for the evil we did to Joseph. They are being treated as spies. They have not been believed. Their word has no credibility. They have been placed in prison. They are having to leave a brother in Egypt. What they have hidden for 20 years is coming to light and haunting them. How can they expect God to bless, protect, or deliver them after what they have been hiding and suppressing and the lie that they have been living under? Joseph overhears them discussing their guilt. And for Joseph, this is an incredible vantage point. This is more light to already good circumstances. He realizes now how they feel about what they did. He realizes that they have not been free from the condemnation of what they did to him, that God has been faithful to haunt them. God has been faithfully speaking to their hearts, convicting them this entire time. And he also realizes that Reuben tried to save him. Joseph has the divine vantage point. He is in the promise of God. His dreams are being fulfilled. He is hearing that the brothers did have guilt and continue to hold guilt for what they did. Jo Joseph has never been forgotten. They haven't been able to move forward emotionally or spiritually, but Joseph has. Manasseh, God has made me forget all the anguish that I suffered in my father's household. Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph has moved forward spiritually. Joseph has moved forward emotionally. Joseph has moved forward physically. Joseph has even moved forward financially. Every area of Joseph's life has gone forward. The worst is over for Joseph. The worst is over. And the future only portends good. But these brothers have no such vantage point. They have 
no hope for good because they are on the wrong side of God. Yet Joseph knows that he is the salvation of his brethren, that he is their deliverance. He knows that he alone is able to save, enrich, bless his brothers. He knows that the circumstances and the famine are actually working for the brothers good. He knows that these brothers need to be brought to repentance and to be made right with God. He knows that what these brothers have hidden needs to be brought to light so they will no more be living in lies or hiding in the shadows. He knows that the famine will be used by God to reunite the family, to deliver Jacob's family from death, to sustain them through the famine, and to exalt them in Egypt. And finally, to bless them. What looks bad to the brothers is in reality the very best thing possible that could happen to them. Yet, Joseph does not reveal himself. There's a timing in all of this. He has to prove that the brothers are repentant. He must move them to the deepest repentance. We note in all of this too, Joseph does not have a hardened heart. He could be so hard to these brothers for what they did. Imagine if Joseph had chosen to hold a grudge and to blame every bad thing that happened to him on his brothers. How awful, how terrible these circumstances would be. But because Joseph has chosen to forgive, to keep his heart tender, he weeps. He weeps over his brother's guilt. He weeps over their hurt. He weeps over their pain. He weeps for his brothers. It reminds me of Jesus when he sees Jerusalem and he weeps for them. And he speaks to Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known the good things that God intended for you this day, but they are hidden from your eyes. And then Jesus spoke of the evil and the pain that would happen to Jerusalem, and he cried over it. Joseph turns away from them in order to weep. No doubt his eyeliner was running, and he had to turn away from them. And when he speaks to them again, he requires that one of the brothers be left in Egypt while they return to Canaan with the grain. And when they come back, they must bring their youngest brother. Simeon is the one who is chosen to stay in Egypt. Perhaps he is voted by the brothers to be the one to stay, or maybe he volunteers. Perhaps knowing Simeon's violent nature, remember it was Simeon and Levi that had fallen on the men of Shechem. Maybe they knew he's the most likely to survive in prison. He is bound before his brothers, verse 24, 
and he's taken to the prison. The brothers then start the three-week journey back to Canaan, but they must stop at these different uh, campgrounds, perhaps an oasis even, and stay the night. Now, one of the brothers, and we're not told which one, opens his sack in order to get grain to feed the donkeys. And when he opens his sack, he's astonished to find that all his money, all that silver, is in the top of the bag that's to hold the grain. In verse 28, he says, what is this that God has done to us? If they felt condemned and guilty before in the presence of Joseph, imagine the guilt they feel now. This is a test. Will they confess it or will they pocket the money? Will they tell Jacob? Will they tell Joseph? It's a test of their honesty. When they return, if they tell the truth, their lives are in jeopardy. Will they tell the truth or will they not tell the truth? Years ago, I remember um, going shopping. Remember when we used to be able to do that? But going shopping at um, a store called Savons. It's now CVS. And I went there and I needed some travel supplies. We were going on a little vacation with my parents and I needed toothpaste. And I remember deliberating over which toothpaste I was going to get and kind of losing track of what I was doing. I was distracted by something. I had uh, my daughter, Kristen, and my son, Char, with me at the time. Char was three, Kristen was five, and I got distracted. And when we went back to the church, because I went to the church, and I was talking to Brian, and I said, Oh, no, I forgot the toothpaste. And with that, Char said, not to worry. And he unzipped his little backpack. And he had filled it with every single travel size toothpaste that they had had at Savants. Can you imagine just absolutely brimming like some people have done with the paper towels from Costco or the toilet paper? His backpack was overflowing. And Brian and I looked at each other and I said, you need to take him back to the store and have him confess, you know, that he took all these toothpaste, you know, Char, we have to take these back. And Brian said, you're the mother, you need to take him back. And we begin to uh, discuss um, amicably which parent was more qualified to take their son back and confess the toothpaste. We knew we couldn't just let it go. You know, we could not live with the guilt of all those stolen toothpaste on our conscience. In the end, our, our assistant pastor, Gaylord Tohill, volunteered to take Char back and to do the confession. And we were both very, very relieved. But I remember the guilt over that. What has my son done? And magnify that you know, a billion times. This is the guilt these brothers felt when they found the silver in the sack, in the sack of grain. But it also was reminding them of the silver that they sold Joseph for. Oh, the guilt. Oh, the guilt. 
The brothers return to Jacob without Simeon. They relate their experience in the court of the prime minister of Egypt, including how they found the money returned in their sacks. By this time, they've all opened their sacks. They're honest with their father. They are not trying to pocket uh, what they perceive to be an oversight by the Egyptians. Jacob, hearing all of this, concludes, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. Verse 36, Jacob's earthbound perspective. Joseph is dead. And the potential of grandchildren or from a lineage from Joseph is over. To Jacob, God had failed his promise. Remember when Joseph related those dreams and Jacob took it to heart? Why? Because he too had had a dream. And in his dream, he had seen the angels on a ladder going up and down to God, and God had spoken to him. It was through a dream that the promises conferred to Abraham were then conferred to Jacob. But God has failed. That which God seemed to speak to Joseph in Jacob's mind is not a possibility. Joseph, who was to be the patriarch, who, who was to be over the family, the firstborn from Rachel, in Jacob's mind is dead. And therefore, God has failed Jacob. Now, Benjamin is being required of him. He must surrender Benjamin, the son of his right hand, the son that he is protected with his life, this son that he has always kept in his sight must be surrendered that the livestock and his grandchildren will live. To Jacob, it all seems like a loss. There's a lost son. There's lost promises. There's lost provision. And he is looking forward to further loss. At this point, Reuben offers his sons in place of Benjamin. This is not a solace to Jacob. You know, ben, Reuben says, oh, just let Benjamin be entrusted to me. And if he dies, you can have my two grandsons and put them to death. You know, the death of two more grandsons is of no comfort. Death for death is no comfort. Not only that, but Reuben's word does not hold any credibility with Jacob. Reuben had betrayed Jacob by his adultery with Bilhah. Reuben had not been with, Reuben had not protected Joseph. When Joseph had gone to find his brothers, Reuben had been no protection. 
Jacob says, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. It was when Jacob let Joseph out of his sight to go find his brothers that Joseph had died. He is certainly not willing to let Benjamin go with these same men. From his vantage point, again, from Jacob's vantage point, he does not realize that his distrust, his doubt, his fear, his resistance, his stubbornness is only delaying the promises of God. He does not realize that he is only keeping himself and his family from the blessings of God. It is only when Jacob is once again willing to trust God, to entrust to God, to sacrifice to God, that there will be any hope for sustenance and salvation. Can I stop for a minute and just say, there are some of you from your vantage point that think God has failed you. I don't know what you prayed that God didn't answer in the way you expected or what God allowed in your life. Maybe the loss of a job, a, a transfer. I know a woman today who is still upset with God because of a job loss. She can't get past it. She can't get over it no matter how uh, many speak comfort or speak the promises of God into her life. She can't see the blessing of where she is right now or move forward in her life because of her distrust of God, because she feels that God failed her in allowing this in her life. What do you feel God has failed you in? What is that place that from your perspective you think God has failed? Where is it? What is that thing that is holding you back from all the promises and all the blessings? What is it right now that is stunting you from going forward spiritually, from going forward physically, from going forward even maybe financially, from going forward emotionally? What is that place? Let me tell you this, friends. It's only delaying the promises and the goodness of God. The goodness of God is waiting for you. It's waiting for you. Some of you need to forgive God for not doing it your way. You need to ask forgiveness from God for insisting that it be your way, your will above God's will, your vantage point is only keeping you from God's goodness. Moving on to Genesis chapter 43. The famine continues to be severe. Do you realize Jacob has to get in the most desperate situation. The grain has completely run out to the last kernel until he is willing to take a chance on God again until he is willing to trust and entrust to God. The family of Jacob is now desperate, desperate. 
How long has Simeon been languishing in prison? We don't know. But that just shows you Jacob's stubbornness. He has been unwilling to let Benjamin go from his sight. That's it. His unwillingness to let Benjamin go to Egypt with his brothers. Jacob summons his sons and he instructs them to return to Egypt. Go buy, go back and buy us a little food. Judah begins to reason with Jacob. He seems to be the only son who can get through to his father. Perhaps Judah's word now has credibility with Jacob because Jacob has seen the change in Judah since the incident with Tamar. Judah reminds Jacob of the experience that the brothers had in Egypt, where the prime minister told them that they could not return without Benjamin. Then Judah said to his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him, for my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. Perhaps Judah's word had credibility because Jacob had seen Judah keep his word to Tamar, keep his word and bring Tamar into the house and yet act respectfully towards Tamar. He had seen Judah uh, take Perez and the other son and raise them as his own. He had seen Judah's humility and sacrifice and willingness to do the right thing. Judah reminded Jacob that without Benjamin, the clan of Jacob will certainly die. If Benjamin goes with the brothers, there is the chance, the slim chance of salvation. Judah promises to bring Benjamin back and present him to Jacob. He gives his word. Judah reminds his father that time is of the essence. Jacob is only prolonging the inevitable. And if Jacob had acted sooner, by this time the brothers would be back and Benjamin would again be in eyesight of Jacob. Jacob, fearing the worst, but desperate to save his family, releases Benjamin. He then sends the best that Canaan has to offer with his sons. Now remember earlier, Jacob had used a gift of his livestock to appease the wrath of Esau. Now he seeks to do the same with the prime minister of Egypt. He sends the best fruit in vessels, a little balm, perhaps the balm of Gilead, a special ointment only found in Canaan, a little honey, spices, myrrh, which is an expensive and exquisite resin used for medicine, perfume, and incense, pistachio nuts, I don't need to describe those, 
almonds, you know what that is. Here are the best things Canaan has to offer. Then he tells the brother, not only return the money, but take double the money to pay for the grain. Pay twice as much as that grain um, is being offered at. And then he sends his beloved son, Benjamin. Jacob must trust and entrust to God. He is out of options. He does not realize that this will bring the greatest blessing of God to his life. He says to his sons, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. It is a, cold, it is a full commitment of what he loves most to the Lord. It is his son. It is his emotional stability. It is his physical health. Joseph's brothers returned to Egypt with Benjamin. This time, when they return, Joseph sees Benjamin. It's been at least 21 years since he has seen his younger brother. He orders all the sons of Jacob to be taken to his house. Now, to the brothers of Jacob, this looks so, so bad. Verse 18, it looks like Joseph is taking them to his private house, away from the public eye, so he can do whatever he wants to do to them, so he can inflict whatever punishment against them that he wants. They feel guilt over the silver in their sacks now. They say to themselves, he's seeking an occasion against us. He is going to fall on us. He's going to make us slaves. And worst of all, he's going to take our donkeys. They have no idea of what to expect. They certainly do not expect what is about to unfold before them. Joseph, in the meantime, has ordered that an animal be slaughtered and a feast, a feast. Now, these, these men have been living on starvation rations. And Joseph is ordering a feast to be prepared for them. Jacob's sons confess everything to the steward of Joseph's house in verses 19 through 22. They are showing their honesty. They are not hiding. They are not seeking to profit from that money or keep it for themselves. Earlier, they had sought to profit from their brother's uh, slavery. They're not seeking to profit anymore. They're willing to give this money back. They found the money in their sacks. They tell the steward they don't know how it got there, but they brought it back in twice as much to purchase more grain. Look at the honesty of these brothers. God is working all the dishonesty out of them. Joseph's steward speaks peace to them and reminding them that their God is good. Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. This is coming from an Egyptian. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. In other words, this steward is saying you've already paid for it. 
Your God is for you and has provided for you. Here is an Egyptian encouraging the sons of Israel to trust their God. And then he restores Simeon to their company. The brothers, having been brought into Joseph's house, are expecting the worst, but they are given the best. They're given water. Their feet are washed. Their donkeys are given feed. Those donkeys that they thought would be confiscated are now being fed. And they are told that they will feast with Zaphnath Panelath the prime minister of Egypt. Again, in verse 28, the brothers bow low to Joseph and they present the gifts that they have brought to him. Joseph sees Benjamin and his heart yearns for his little brother. He finds a private place and begins to weep. Then he washes his face and returns. He restrains himself. Can you imagine? He probably just wants to run and just embrace Benjamin in his arms. He orders that bread be served. And then all the brothers are seated at a separate table in their birth order. Now the brothers are all seated and all of a sudden they begin to look around and go, wait a second. They were seated in our birth order. I wonder how long it took them to catch on. Wow, wait, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin. The chances of this happening are somewhere around one in 40 million. Now, I'm a crime, true crime junkie. I love to watch true crime shows. And I know that when the DNA evidence comes back and says the probability of this DNA belonging to anybody else, but the man on trial, the defendant, is one in 40 million, you know he's guilty. It's like, oh yeah, you did it, you did it, you did it. So that fact that they're set in their birth order is nothing less than divine. It couldn't just happen. This is astonishing to the brothers. Do they see it as a sign of God, from God? From their vantage point, can they even receive it as a sign that God is for them? Can they receive the word of the servant that God is for them, enriching their lives? Can they receive the feast and the, the, the foot washing as a blessing from God? The brothers are all served this amazing feast, but Benjamin's portion is five times as large. Perhaps Joseph had them in this room with him, even though he sat at a separate table, so he could observe their reaction. Are they going to murmur among themselves saying, why did he get more mashed potatoes than I got? I, I don't know about you, but when my children were young, 
I have one child that always counted how many presents everyone got at Christmas. You know, sometimes you buy someone a big present and it costs as much as everybody else's presents. But you know, no, he had to have the same amount. So what I would do is if he asked for a good present and everybody else got 10 presents, he would get the big present and nine packs of gum. You know, I just had to make it even because he counted. These brothers are not counting. They're not comparing. They're not competing. Through this test, Joseph sees that they have changed. Now, even with these amazing clues, these amazing blessings, the brothers still cannot understand what is going on. They still cannot receive the blessing of what is happening. When you are on the wrong side of God, when you are hiding, or at least thinking you're hiding your sin from him, when you are refusing to acknowledge or confess your sin to God, you will always feel like a victim. No matter how great your circumstances are, you will always be waiting for that proverbial rock to fall. You will misunderstand God's work in your life, and you will always be misinterpreting what God is doing. Even when God is working, for your good in order to sustain you, to provide for you, to protect you, to teach you, to enrich you, to help you, you will misinterpret it. Years ago, um, my father was helping us with our house. We bought a house in Huntington for $96,000. Can you believe that? That you used to be able to get a house in Huntington Beach for $96,000. Um, we fixed up this house and my dad was there helping us fix up this house. We tore out the carpet, realized there were hardwood floors underneath. Um, we had this party at our house. Remember when you used to have parties at your houses? And we pulled out all the tacks and the nails. That was our party. I fed everybody who would pull out the tacks and nails. And we were clearing the floor so that we could sand the floor. We had got we had gotten home and we realized my dad's car was in front of this house. Actually, we were living with them. And we went to the house and when we went in, there was my dad with a sander that he rented. We were coming in with a sander. And he was there sanding all the, the floors of our house. I mean, my dad was amazing. Another time, we came home. There was a pool in the backyard that had frogs and mosquitoes growing out of it that we had to fix and clean. But he wanted a, a fence across the back in order to protect his grandchildren from falling in the pool. And we came home and we saw this um, trail of blood leading around to the back. And I got so afraid, I went running back. And there was my dad still working on this fence, but he had taken his t-shirt and tied it around his head like a tourniquet. Why? Because he had been using a pickaxe to break open the ground. And going like this, he had come back and hit his head, put a huge gouge in his head. For weeks, the scab made him look like Gorbachev. You have, if you don't know who Gorbachev is, Google him, and you will see that for a while, he and my father bore a resemblance. 
But there he is. He's doing all of this for us. At the same time, we had bought, um, at the same time um, as my dad was working, um, Brian decided to mow the lawn. And he was mowing the lawn, you know, in the front yard. And he heard this sound, but he didn't think anything of it. And then in he was, as he was mowing, he realized that as he was mowing next to my dad's car, that the lawnmower had like this screw that stuck out and it had put this long scrape in my dad's car. Excuse me, one second, somebody is doing something and I don't know how to do this other than obviously. There, I'm silenced now for a while. Anyway, he had put this long scrape in my dad's car and he felt so bad. How can he tell my dad who has done so much for us and for this house that he just put a, an 18 inch long scrape in my dad's car? He just couldn't. Well, Brian decided to hide this just to suppress this. He, he just didn't know what to do. And meantime, my dad's doing all these great things for us. We're, we're at church this one day and I look and I said, Dad, how did you get that long scratch in your car? And my dad said, I just don't know, Cheryl. I guess there's someone out there who just doesn't like me. I was so upset. How dare anybody do anything to my beloved, best dad in the world. How could anyone do anything to this? You know, my dad always had enemies. He always had people slandering him. And it would always make me so mad, I wanted to go beat them all up. And I'm looking at this scratch and I, I became obsessed with it. You know, I, the Nancy Drew in me came out. I was gonna find the perpetrator. I was gonna make them pay. I was so angry that somebody could dislike my father so much. And I would, I would go on and on and on in the car with Brian. I can't believe somebody did this. How terrible, this is just terrible. And one day as we're driving, Brian says, it was me, okay, it was me. I put the scratch in the car. And I looked at him and I said, why would you ever do that to my father? I mean, I was ready to divorce him. I could not believe I had married the man that put the scratch in my dad's car. But Brian said, Cheryl, it was an accident. I didn't mean to. I, I was mowing the lawn and I was too close to his car. And then I felt like an idiot after all he's done for us. How can I confess this? And I said, I don't know, but you're going to confess it. You're going to confess it right now. You call him up. Well, Brian got on the phone all ready to confess, but he just couldn't do it. He's like, Chuck, can I come in and see you? My dad said, sure. Brian went into the office. He said, Chuck, you know that scratch in your car? It was me. I didn't do it on purpose. Chuck, I love you. Chuck, I think you're the greatest. I did it with the lawnmower. I wasn't paying attention. I feel so bad. But then when I realized what I had done, I, I just felt like such an idiot that you're gonna say, I can't believe this is my son-in-law, you know, meatloaf. I didn't know what you were gonna think of me. And so I've been suppressing it, I've been hiding it. Chuck, I'm so sorry, do whatever you want. At this point, Brian was the junior high pastor at Calvary. He expected to be fired. He expected my dad to say, well, that's it, the end. My dad 
turned to Brian and he said, well, praise the Lord. Nobody hates me. We'll get it taken care of. Not a problem. Brian said the grace and the relief that flowed over him was astounding. And you know what? He loved my dad even more. And their relationship became closer and tighter because, not in spite, but because of it. In fact, my dad used to say to Brian, tell the lawnmower story, tell the lawnmower story. And my dad felt like nobody told the lawnmower story, as it was known in my home, better than Brian. He even had him tell it at a pastor's conference. And my dad would laugh so hard and enjoyed that story so much. You see, there is relief and only relief and only restoration and only the realization of God's good work when we repent and only when we choose to repent, when we confess our sins. Things are never what they appear to be from our earth-bound view. God was working in all the things that were transpiring, not for Jacob's destruction, but for their deliverance from sin, from famine, and from extinction. But there's a greater picture here that God is painting of his great work through Jesus Christ. I've often wondered if on the Emmaus Road that we read about in Luke 24, when Jesus, hidden from the side of Cleopas and the other disciple, Cleopas and the other disciple thinking that Jesus is dead, thinking that Jesus is no more, who are grieved. And Jesus begins to speak to them beginning at Genesis, going all the way through the prophets. He expounds to these disciples the things concerning himself, if perhaps he expounded on the story of Joseph. I want you to notice the length of time that Joseph is out of the sight of his brothers, 20 to 21 years. During that time, the brothers assume Joseph is dead. They sold him because they did not want him to be their ruler, even though he was their father's choice to be the ruler. They sold him because his righteousness made them look bad. It exposed their sin, and they didn't want him in their midst. They gave Joseph over to the Gentiles. But there, among the Gentiles, Joseph was made the second in command over the entire world. He was responsible for ruling over the Gentiles. He was in charge of sustaining the Gentiles. He was over the supply and source of life for all the Gentiles. It was seven years of famine, severity, and the threat of life that finally brought the sons of Jacob to the presence of Joseph. It was during the seven years of tribulation that the family of Joseph sought out the sustenance 
and unbeknownst to them came and bowed down to Joseph, not realizing that it was their brother, one taken from their midst before whom they bowed. Joseph knew them, and he required that all the brothers come and bow. Do you see the picture? Jesus was sold by his brothers, the Jewish nation to the Gentiles. He was given to the Romans to be crucified. And it has been ages and ages, 20 to 21 centuries, since they have acknowledged him. And during this time, Jesus has begun to reign in the hearts of many Gentiles. He has become the sustenance and the source of life to millions upon millions of Gentiles. But the majority of Jews over these centuries have considered Jesus dead and have wanted no association with him. However, there is coming a time when Israel will need grain again. A period of seven years is yet determined for them according to Daniel chapter nine. And during this time when they are oppressed by famine, when they are desperate, when they are on the verge of extinction, they will come to Jesus. They will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as for a firstborn son, Zechariah 12.10. And in that day, God will restore all the sons of Israel to himself. The circumstances that look like they are against Israel are actually the circumstances that will bring the greatest repentance, reconciliation, restoration, renewal, enrichment, glory, and exaltation to the sons of Jacob. There's a coming day, and we are so close to it, my friends. We have seen the first fulfillment, and there is yet more to come, but it will come in the tribulation. It will come during the time of famine worldwide when Israel will again come back to the brother that they saved, to the one who incarnated and became a Jew, who was legally and biologically the true king of Israel. They will come to him. For us, the lesson is that you cannot trust your own perspective in your circumstances, in your trials, in desperate times. These circumstances for the child of God are the ones in which God is working to accomplish his great deliverance. Things are never what they appear to the human eye. The great invisible God is working and has been working 
to bring deliverance to us, to fulfill all his promises, to bless us, to give us an incredible story of faith. Do not trust in oppression, as it says in Psalm 62:10. Do not trust in oppression. Do not reckon the circumstances against you as greater than the circumstances that God has for you. Do not have more faith in oppression than God's deliverance. Do not have more faith in the bad that is in the world than in the good that is in God. Do not have more faith in your fears than in the deliverance of God. What should we as believers do in the present circumstances or in any severe circumstances with our divine advantage point, accept the circumstances. Don't fight against them. Do your best to co cooperate with God in them. In other words, hold them up to God. Elizabeth Elliot talked about in acceptance lies in peace, not in resignation. She said, peace lies in taking, accepting these circumstances and holding them up to God and say, God, how do you want to use these circumstances for your glory? And then cooperating with God. Then make sure you are on the right side of God through repentance and confession. Make sure there's no obstacles between you and God. Then trust and entrust yourself completely to God. Trust and entrust for Jacob, it meant entrusting Benjamin, his physical health, and his emotional welfare to God. But Jacob resisted giving Benjamin to God because he felt that God had failed him. And in doing so, he only delayed God's deliverance and God's amazing blessings. We don't want to delay God. We want God's greatest work to be done sooner than later. We want to step into the blessings of God sooner than later. God has great things ahead for Jacob and the family of Jacob. We see this. We know that because we know the story. And we have an inkling of those things, even in our lives, because we know Joseph's story. Jacob didn't know it. His sons didn't know it. But even though they didn't know it, and even though they couldn't see it, it didn't change the reality of God's good plans. Just because they didn't see it didn't mean Joseph wasn't ruling, didn't mean Joseph hadn't had, didn't have a storehouse of good things to supply them with. Just because they couldn't see it doesn't didn't change it. Just because you can't see God's goodness right now doesn't mean that God's not good. Just because you can't see how God will deliver you doesn't mean that God won't deliver you. God has good plans for us now, and he is working in them and through our lives. God has delivered us in the past. God is delivering us right now, and God will deliver us. 1 Corinthians 1, 9 through 10, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed 
them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. You might not have even considered. You know, we're always thinking of ways that God could work. Like, oh God, if you go five doors down to the house with the yellow door and ask for the youngest son, don't get the second to the youngest son. He's not that nice. But if you get the youngest son, we have these plans for God. God's like, do you mind if I do it my way? I've got a better plan that you haven't even seen, thought of, or ever heard about. God wants to bring us into all the good plans that he has for all those who love him. For Joseph, that meant waiting, trusting, and cooperating with all the circumstances in his life, seeking and hearing from the Lord and walking in obedience. For the sons of Jacob, it meant realization of their sin and repentance and confession. For Jacob, it meant trusting and entrusting again to God, the greatest treasure of his heart and life, the thing that he held the tightest he had to surrender. I don't know what it will mean for you, but God is willing and wanting to show you his great goodness and bring you into the fulfillment of all the things he's promised. Your deliverance is already in place and waiting, waiting right now. God is able to deliver you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my sisters right now, and I want to pray for them. Lord, I don't know what straits they are in. I don't know what their fears are. Lord, I'm sure that some have economic fears. I'm sure that some are worried. Um, they have a Benjamin. They have sons and daughters that they're concerned about financially, um, emotionally. Some are worried about their parents and their parents' health with this COVID-19. Lord, you know all of the concerns. Lord, you know the places. Lord, there's some... Lord, who are listening, who are watching, who need to cooperate with you, just need to accept and, Lord, begin to serve you and obey you and cooperate with what you have for them at this time in this place, something new, something unexpected. Lord, there are others who are like the sons of Jacob who need to, need to repent. They have, they have been disobedient. They have been covering sin. They have been hiding sin, Lord, and you're calling them right now to repent, to confess that sin before you, that you might cleanse, that you might heal, that you might restore and realign. Lord, there are others who are like Joseph, who have lost faith in you because of some disappointment, because of their vantage point, that they cannot see you and see the glory and the good things and the reason why you allowed this. And they're angry with you and they're angry with others because of some circumstance, either in their past or their present, where they feel as if you have failed them. God, I'm asking you to speak to all of these 
circumstances, all of these people, whatever straits your daughters find themselves in, that you would work in them, Lord, to repent, to entrust, to accept and cooperate with whatever the hard place is, that they might experience your great deliverance, that they might know your great blessing, that they might see you as Jesus, the great Son of God, who sits on the right hand of the Father, always making intercession for our good and our deliverance and for our glory. Lord, thank you that you are on the throne, that you are ruling right now as sovereign, that you have already supplied the grain. You have already dealt with our enemies and you are already waiting to supply us with all we need according to your riches and glory. We give you, Lord, all the hard places of our life, all the unknowns. In Jesus' name, amen.